It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. So I am going through a mini-series that is paralleling some of the things that I'm, I'm releasing in regards to my communications on Joshua Harris and what is taking place there. For those of you that aren't familiar with uh, Joshua Harris, he's, uh, he's always been a dear uh, friend. That's what I would have called him, and I still would. Uh, and his recent renouncement of his faith in Christ has left uh, many of us in the church um, struggling uh, to sort of make sense of it all. And uh, he's always had a very strong platform, and it's a platform that has been very closely associated with Leslie and I. And so it's led to a, uh, something in the last uh, few weeks for me where I felt like, you know, I think I need to probably communicate on this, and I think I need to give some clear response, uh, even if it's for my own sake, uh, but also for my family and for the body of Christ. Because when truth is being maligned, it is important that we bring clarity. And so one of the things I'm doing in Daily Thunder right now is yesterday I went through, I have a name for every series I go through. If you look at our Daily Thunder list, you always see names of series. And this one's called Reminders from Joshua Harris. Because actually when you go through something like this and there is some kind of breakdown in the body of Christ or a key leader fails, it is a shock. It's jarring to the body of Christ as it should be. I, I think it would be bad if it wasn't. And yet, what the enemy means for evil in a situation like this, God always has a design to turn it. And that's the same with everything in our life. Every difficulty we go through in our life, God has a design to actually convert that difficulty, that trial, into something stronger for us. So we actually become stronger, more adept in our Christianity, more mature in our Christianity because of it. And so I look at this as a global thing. I would like to see this leveraged. It's not because I'm cheering on what has happened. I'm... I'm, deeply disturbed by what has taken place, and I desire to see Josh Harris restored. I really do. But in the meantime, the enemy is up to no good, and I would like to see what he is attempting for evil to be converted in our lives. And so that's what these are. This is a reminder message, something that is being stirred. Yesterday, I talked about fatherhood, and what I'm walking through with this Joshua Harris thing is stirring within me a desire as a father to be better at what I'm doing. And it's, it's just stirred all this reminiscence up. It's very interesting how beautiful uh, the work of grace has been in my soul as I've walked through this. This one is a, is a focus on something very specific that has come up because whenever as a, as a communicator, as a pastor, as a teacher, you're put in a position where someone asks a tough question uh, because the, the key question is, you know, the purity movement has destroyed me. Eric, what do you have to say about that? Well, that's an interesting thing for me to know how to respond to because, first of all, I don't like terms like purity movement, to be honest with you. It sort of bothers me. But it was. It was a movement, whether we want to call it that or not. It was a movement that started in the uh, mid-90s, maybe before that, but uh, somewhere in that range, and has continued strongly, but it continued strongly for about 10 years, and it still is a present tense issue, but there was a very, very strong uh, season for it. And when someone says it destroyed them, okay, well, okay, 
Well, that's important to me. As, as a leader, as a pastor, I always want to be sensitive to that. You know, if my kids one day come back to me and say, your parenting destroyed me, it would matter to me. Okay, so these things matter, but so how do I respond to that? Well, as a leader, I need to know more. I need to understand what is taking place. Well, what do you mean? The truth of Jesus Christ destroyed you? Uh, because the purity movement, as far as Leslie and I would be concerned, was just preaching Jesus. That's what we did. And so in Jesus in regards to your love life. Okay, so you take Jesus and add him into your love life, what do you get? You get a consecrated love life. In other words, a love life that says, hey, this isn't my own, this belongs to Jesus because Jesus purchased me with his blood. I am no longer my own, I've been bought with a price. So if I take my love life and I give it to him, is that what harmed someone? Is by entrusting your life to Jesus? You see, something's not right there and there's more to it and that is because in everything that takes place, every movement, there's two. There's two strains, there's two varieties. The devil always has a counterfeit version. And so what we see in Christianity, in the early development of Christianity, is we see something called Judaism, or Judaizers, or uh, the, the legalists it would probably be a better term for us, that are very present tense in the time of the early church. And they are coming and saying, no, the church needs to be under law. And then you see Paul waxing eloquent saying, hey, we've been set free from law. Why would we once again return? We've been set free to a higher system of living, and that is a life by the Holy Spirit. We are no longer just trying to live according to God's dictates in our own strength and power, but by God's power. And that separation of two marks the history of Christianity. In every season in Christianity, there's always that attempt by the evil one to try and bring us back under law and formula and rules. And whereas there are standards and there are truths, how you appropriate them defines if you are going to thrive in your spiritual life or actually be weighted down and destroyed. So I can actually understand if someone said, the purity movement destroyed me, right? What I would probably guess from the very beginning, because I've been around this for so many years, is I would say it's very likely that they were carrying the legalistic version of it and that they were trying to perform purity in their own human strength. And you know what? I have a tremendous empathy for someone stuck in that. However, that isn't the message that has always been communicated. Though it is communicated by some, it's not the essence of what was communicated through the purity movement, if you want to call it that. It was give your life to Jesus Christ, let him come and live inside of you and enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. And so if it comes to purity, guess what? You can't be pure in your own strength, but I can introduce you to someone who is, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let him move inside and live his life in and through you. When Jesus Christ moves in and lives inside of you, you don't say, oh, I was destroyed by that. No, you say, I was saved by that. You see, it's a very different uh, language that begins to come out. So this message is called the twos of scripture. Extremely fascinating. One of the most profound uh, studies you could ever have is just to study the twos in scripture. But what you're going to see is that there's always two. So like all the way back to the Garden of Eden, there's two. That's pretty amazing, but there's two trees. Now what's funny is there's all sorts of trees. Like, because if I say there's always two, you go, oh, there's more than two. There is, of course, more than two. There's a lot of numbers that we can count up in life. However, when God is focusing on a truth, oftentimes he'll divide it into twos. For instance, as simple as light and dark, as simple as life and death, 
As simple as the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of the devil. In other words, you, you have two. You don't have multiple kingdoms. You have two kingdoms. And you need to transfer from one kingdom into another. That's what a new birth in Christ is. It's a second birth. So we must be born again. We must leave our first state, which is in Adam, our old man, and we must be born again into a second life. And so if you're not a twice born, if you're not a second, well, then you're still under condemnation because you're in a first, which is Adam. So in the Garden of Eden, we have two trees. And, I mean, just like all of us, we have two trees in our life. It's interesting because in the Garden of Eden, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. And you have a tree of life. Have you ever wondered why they didn't eat from the tree of life? If they had eaten from the tree of life, they would live forever, but instead they gravitate to the very thing they shouldn't, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is what's called the law of sin and death. You eat, you die. And guess what? They ate, and as a result, they died. And that marks what we can call the first man. Okay, so Adam, all of us are descendants of Adam, who sinned. And so therefore, he sinned, he died. Well, he sinned, we died. So all of his descendants have died as well. And that's the first. That's the lineage of the first. But there is one who has come to this earth who is not born of Adam. He is born of God. His father is in actuality God Almighty. And that is Jesus Christ. And he sets up a new lineage. And he makes a way that by faith, if we would believe in him, we would exit the first and enter the second and be saved. And so once again, you see a first and a second. And anyone who remains in the first condition, guess what? They're under judgment. That's why we preach the gospel. Repent. Leave the first position and enter the second. Jesus is the only means of salvation. Okay, so in the garden, we see two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is symbolic of the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. But then there's also a tree of life. Remember, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. Cherubim with flaming swords guarded the way. The way to the tree of life. Well, who is the way to the tree of life? Who is the way? The truth and the life. It's Jesus. And so Jesus has opened up a way in and through his own sufferings, in and through his own shed blood, in and through his own death, burial, and resurrection. He has made a way for us to come to that tree. And what's amazing is the cross is a tree. And when we come unto that cross and eat of the fruit off of that tree, we live. So the first tree... You eat, you die. The second tree, unless you eat of it, you cannot live. And so we have the juxtaposed trees, the twos. All throughout history, this is how it works. So I'm going to just give you a very quick survey of all the, uh, not all, this is just a, an overview of twos in Scripture. Cain, Abel, they both bring an offering. And have you ever felt bad for Cain? I mean, I, I used to always feel bad for Cain. But Cain is symbolic. God is immediately, from the very beginning of this story, this grand story of redemption, he is showing something. He's proving something. He's saying that there's two, and the first one, when it offers what it offers, it offers us out of the flesh, out of self-effort. And the second one offers something pleasing to God. And so Cain offers an offering, and Abel offers an offering. God rejects Cain's offering, and receives Abel's. He receives the offering of the second. You see, that's setting us up to understand he's going to receive the offering of the second man. Of course, that's Jesus. And so the offering of Jesus is satisfying. It's atoning. It's pacifying to God. But the first cannot please God. Ishmael, Isaac. 
Now, Ishmael is just a disaster all over the place. I mean, this is, God gives a promise, and then Abraham attempts to do something in his own strength. It's very important with where we're going right now. When he attempts to do something in his own strength, he creates an Ishmael. Ishmael is described as a donkey of a man. <laughs> what a description. And God is, Abraham is saying, God, could you let Ishmael stand in that place of being the one through which your blessing will come? And God says, no, I can't put my blessing upon Ishmael. He's a first. See, he's a first. He's a symbol of something. And it's only the second that God can bless. And so Isaac is a second. Ishmael, Isaac. Abraham had two sons, but what's amazing is Abraham is going to end up looking at his, at Isaac as his one and only son, if you want to say it that way. And that's profound in the whole history of nations, but also of the story of redemption. Esau, Jacob. So let me read. Uh, Rebecca has, is pregnant, and she has twins in her womb, and, but they're fighting with each other. And this is how the twos work. The twos don't get along. And so the first and the second, or as Paul is going to explain in the New Testament, the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. And so what we see is a picture of that in Rebekah's womb in the Old Testament. So God answers her when she asks the question, God, why is it like this inside of me? And God says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The first is the older, and it will serve the younger. In other words, the second will actually take preeminence. The second will actually, in the end, though at first it looks weaker. And if you look at Esau and Jacob, it's funny because Esau looks stronger. I mean, he's the hunter. He's hairy all over too. I mean, it's impressive, right? Uh, and the second uh, one, Jacob, you know what it says of Jacob? He says it's a, he's a plain man dwelling in tents. That is the worst description of a man I have ever heard in, the, in my life, probably. Not just in the Bible, but in my life. And that's the one that God chooses. And the older will serve the plain man dwelling in tents. And the spirit life, the second born life, looks weaker. It looks frail compared to the hairy hunter life of the firstborn, the flesh life that we have. But we must give up the first and enter the second. And that is a critical dimension to our development as Christians. Leah and Rachel. So we even have two where Jacob goes off and he has all sorts of escapades and falls in love with the second, Rachel, and he gets conned into marrying Leah. It's a, sort of a terrible story. I feel really bad for Leah. Some of these firsts in here, you're just like, oh, the poor thing, what they had to go through. But there's a symbol that is taking place. There's a story of redemption that is being woven in this. And at first, Rachel looks weaker. She's the loved one. She's the one that is esteemed by Jacob, but she's the one that can't produce life. And yet in the end, out of her comes forth Joseph who will deliver the people. And of course, that's symbolic of what comes out of the second, Jesus. Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph. It's an incredible picture because Jacob comes in understanding that God chooses the second. That's what's interesting is Jacob knows this principle. And so Joseph brings him in to bless his sons and Jacob takes his right hand, which is a hand of blessing, and he sticks his right hand on the secondborn, Ephraim, and sticks his left hand upon Manasseh. And, and Joseph's like, hey, that, that, you have it backwards. This is my firstborn. And Jacob says, I know. Jacob knows exactly what he's doing. He is putting his blessing upon the second. Isn't that amazing? Of course, Jacob's the second. You could say, well, he's a little biased. However, it's a picture of redemption. 
So the Amalekites, and then I'm going to say the kingdom of heaven, uh, but that's subject to some unique debate, and that's, it comes from this scripture. Am- Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. The Amalekites are the arch nemesis of Israel. And so I could have just said the Amalekites and the Israelites. The Amalek is the descendant of Esau. So he's, what was he, a great-grandson of Esau is Amalek. So he's a descendant of the firstborn. And he is the first nation. And God is going to establish a nation as well. It is going to be known as Israel. But technically what you see is you see the nations of this earth, Amalek, the first and you see the nation of God, heaven, the kingdom of heaven ruled by Jesus Christ. This is an interesting one because not all firsts are bad. They're just still symbolic of firsts, like Moses and Joshua. It's interesting because Moses is symbolic of something, and that is the law. He is the lawgiver, and the law cannot save. It's only the second that can save. So they're supposed to go into this land of promise, but Moses can't bring them in. God stops him at the edge and says, no, can't bring you in, because he's symbolic of something. What's he symbolic of? A first. And it's not because Moses was a bad guy, but he's still symbolic of something. And as a result, it's only the second, which is Joshua, which is the same name as Jesus, Yeshua, that can bring them into the land of promise. It's an incredible picture of the gospel right there. Saul and David. So now you have the kingdom of Israel, and it starts with the king Saul. And King Saul is rejected by God. God rejects the first, but the second is a man after his own heart, David. And so David is truly the one that God blesses. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Twos. There it is. The Bible's even divided into two. And what we see is that the first, the Old Testament, where it's wonderful, there's nothing wrong with the Old Testament, it's God's word, is not able to save in and of itself. It's law and prophets It speaks of one to come that can save. And the New Testament is where the power of life is found. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you have the Hebrew and the Greek. The Hebrew is a more noble language. It's a more intelligent language. And yet it's the Koine Greek, which is like, to the Hebrew, that would be like the language of dogs. That's like the common language. I mean, anyone can speak Koine Greek. And God chooses the weaker to actually be the Savior. Isn't that just fascinating how God does this? Goats and sheep. So in the New Testament, you see that God will divide uh, to the, the left the goats and to the right the sheep. In other words, there's twos. And he is going to separate them out. And he's going to say the goats are rejected, the sheep are accepted. In other words, what you're going to see is that there are twos. And this is also in the body of Christ. That there are those in the body of Christ that look similar. I know for most of us it's like goats and sheep aren't that similar, but they both go bah, or someone said that goats go bah, so it's like an M sound with it. I, you know, I don't know if goats have an M sound, but supposedly that's, that's the distinction. And then, but there's, they're similar, but very different. Tares and wheats. When tares and wheats, wheat are growing up together, they oftentimes can look similar, but they're different. There's two. Virgins without oil in their lamp and virgins with oil in their lamp. There's two groupings. And as a result, this becomes very, very significant in understanding how the kingdom of heaven works. Martha, Mary. There's two, two women, and one chooses sort of to bustle around in her own strength and to try and accomplish something, and Mary chooses something better. And so God, even in all of these little small stories, is separating things out to say, do you see the clarity? 
John the Baptist Jesus, like I said, it doesn't mean the first is negative, but John the Baptist is a forerunner. He is a first. And he says he's unworthy to even unlatch the sandals of the second. You see, it does not mean that John the Baptist was a bad guy. It just means that John the Baptist wasn't the Savior. John the Baptist was a forerunner, just like the Old Testament was a forerunner to the New Testament. It's saying, hey, he's coming, and here's what he will look like. Do you see him? And then when, the New Te- when, when Jesus comes, John the Baptist must decrease that the second would be seen. Law and grace. You know that law isn't a bad thing? Law is a wonderful thing. It's a schoolmaster, though, to lead us to Jesus. The law cannot save in and of itself. So if I gave you law and I said, here's how you need to live. This is the perfect righteousness of God. Do you know that I'd be speaking truth? I'd be giving you truth, but I'd also be showcasing something to your soul. And that is an emptiness, that you are unable. The law reveals sin. Why? Because it says you must live this way, but then you recognize, I can't live that way. So imagine, guys, if we're talking about the purity movement, and you received law, and you didn't ever receive the power of Jesus Christ to do it. Where would it leave you? I I think it's fair to say that it would destroy you. Because all you would have would be the weight of expectancy, the weight of an expectation over your life, and you cannot fulfill it. And so if you were told, keep your thought life perfectly pure. Hey, never look at the opposite sex. Dress this way. Do this, do this, do this, and you will have a great marriage in the future. Actually, that is not the recipe for a great marriage in the future. That is a a recipe for weight, heaviness, Guilt, condemnation, because everything in your life is going to prove that you're unable to do that. There is only one means by which we can be saved and one means by which we can perform the Christian life. And his name is Jesus. He's the second. Law and grace. You see, law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Grace is the enablement to actually perform the law of God. Law can only tell you how you ought to live. Grace enables you to do it. Which one's higher? Which one's better? I'm voting for grace, guys. You see, grace, there's someone named Grace out in the audience, and I think she really liked that. I'm voting for, vote for grace, and Grace is going to start a little campaign and walk down, uh, vote for grace. I'm voting for grace on this one. Grace is superior to law, not because law is bad, but law cannot perform Only grace can. Flesh, spirit. There's twos. Okay, so when I'm teaching at Ellerslie, I'm always going to stand over here uh, to the left. Well, it's my left. And over here to the right. I'm going to say there's twos. Okay, and if you're in Adam, you're under condemnation, which means you're going to be separated from God for all eternity. But God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son. And this son comes and lives the life that we are called to live but can't. And so if we would humble ourselves and depart and exit from the first and believe in the second, we enter into his work. We enter into his power. We enter into his grace, and that's the life of grace. If you're over here, you're under law. Hey, Eric, you need to live better. You need to do that better. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What does that lead to but despair? Especially when Jesus is right over here. So if you experienced a purity movement that was absent of Christ, that was absent of the power of God to do it, then what are you left with? Yeah, destruction. 
I can understand that. And there's a grief in my soul to think that anyone ever heard the truth of God's kingdom that way. And yet it's always been present. It's all, there's always two taking place. Just because we are far removed from the days of the Pharisees and the days of Judaizers does not mean that that movement has stopped. They have always been in the church. Terrorists have always been in the church. Goats have always been in the church. And they try and convert to goatism, to terrorism, to empty, uh, what, what is it, uh, lamps, to empty lampism. Boy, that was a hard one to say. In other words, hey, follow us. We don't believe that you should have oil in your lamp. We believe that, that those days are past. You need to live in your own strength, your own power, your own ability. It's nonsense. And if you try and go that way, you'll be cut off. There's no life that way. Life is found in the Holy Spirit. Life is found in the life of grace. You see, this, there is a way that is right to live, and that is in Christ Jesus. It is a second way. You must forsake the first. You must humble yourself and leave and depart from the first and believe in the second. Old and new. So the first life is called the old man. And the old man is under condemnation. However, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So when you leave the flesh, when you leave the old behind, then you enter into a new and there's no condemnation here. There's no guilt that lingers. There's no weight and downward pressure. It's upward surge. I have the life of God. I have hope. I have peace. Who wouldn't want this? This is the way to live, guys. And so when you're over here and you're in the old and you're trying to live out Christianity, or how about this, a purity commitment in your old man's strength and old man power, how, how well do you think you're going to pull it off? Well, what kind of performance are you going to give? You're going to stink it up, guys. You can't do it in your own strength. But there is a way to do it. But it's not you doing it. It's God doing it. Christianity is found in giving your life to Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit to come inside and let him do it. I just described for you the great secret to how Christianity functions. All right, here's another one. Adam, Jesus. It's funny because Jesus was 77 generations after Adam, right? So it's like, how could you call that a second? Well, the Bible calls it a second, so that's why. However, if you think about it, think about the two lineages. There's two lineages that you could enter into. Adam, and everyone is born of Adam. But then there is another lineage that is started from heaven itself. Jesus came to this earth, and he was born of the Holy Spirit. He is of the Father. And as a result, he starts a new lineage. Everyone is from Adam except for one, and his name is Jesus. And anyone who would believe upon Jesus, who would repent of his life in Adam and enter into Jesus, will actually enter into a new lineage. So there's two lineages. It's the first man and the second man. So listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. So the spirit man is not first. The natural man is first. So we are made of dust. We are born of Adam. That's first. But the spiritual is not first, which means it's second. The first man was of the earth. He was made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 
Isn't that interesting? The Bible itself calls Jesus the second man. It's beautiful. So look at this one. The tree of T-K-O-G-A-E. Tekogang. Uh, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to the tree of life. This is still the decision that we have before us. God might as well say it this way to us. There's two trees in your life, Eric. If you eat of the first, you die. But if you eat of the second, you will live. Each of us has two trees. We have a way that we could do that seems right unto us. Fruit looks good over here. Oh, wow, that's tantalizing. That's enticing. Should we eat? Well, when you choose the direction of disobedience, you die. When you choose the direction of Jesus, you live. The tree of life, also known as the cross of Jesus Christ, is available to all of us, even those of us that have uh, apple. Whether or not it was an apple on that tree, most people would say it was not an apple. However, if you have apple juice uh, cascading down your chin and all the evidence that you've been eating from the wrong tree, there's a simple solution. Repent. Repent and forsake the first tree and eat of the second. You know that Jesus says something so shocking. He says, unless someone eats of my body and drinks of my blood. Well, you're not food, Jesus. He's fruit hanging on a tree. He says, if you eat from the first tree, you die. But unless you eat of the second, you cannot live. You have opportunity for life, but it means coming to that cross, coming to that second tree and living. In Adam, in Christ. So what I'll oftentimes ask my audience, especially during an Ellerslie semester, is I'll say, what's your position? And they'll yell out, in Christ! And that's because it's so critical in the Christian life that you know your position. Are you in the first or are you in the second? Because all of us are naturally in Adam. We are positionally in Adam. And as long as we remain in Adam, when we die, we go where Adam goes. We are eternally separated from God. The place is called hell. And then in the final judgment, we will be thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, not pleasant thoughts, which is why we say people. Please, Jesus has made a way for you to leave Adam and enter into Christ where you might be saved and you might have eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's two. There's two places you could be right now. You could be in Adam or you could be in Christ. There's not three. There's not four. There's two places. And so could you imagine trying to live a purity commitment in Adam? It doesn't make any sense. But if you're in Christ, your motivation, why do I want to be pure? You know that it's not just that I desire to be pure before marriage. You know that I still crave purity in my life? And I still labor intensely for purity in my life? Why? Why would I do that? Because I love Jesus. And impurity hinders my walk with him. It doesn't just hinder my marriage and my relationship with my kids and my relationship with everyone else on earth to walk in impurity, but it hinders my walk with Christ. Why would I ever want anything to block it up? It's sort of like having a, uh, I have a riverbed in, my, in our back. We have like a little brook. And if one of the rocks gets knocked in, one of the big rocks, it blocks up all the flow of water. Well, why would I want to keep a rock in there? It doesn't help my brook. Why don't you get it out? That's the same concept. You see, purity is a God thing. It's a beautiful thing. So if there's a purity movement, what would that movement be? It would be a movement of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, I want to have an intimate love relationship with you. Could you please allow me to move inside of your life and remove everything that is blockading my flow of grace into your life so that you can showcase the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Would you let me have your life? That's a purity movement. And so if there is a purity movement, quote unquote, that is killing someone, there's something wrong with that version of purity. What is being said? It's a first. And so if you're hearing a first message, you need to try and do this in your own strength. You need to do it according to this formula. You need to do this, 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 and this. And if you don't, oh, I can't even bear to think of what would happen to you. That is a miserable way to live, as opposed to being invited into the life of Jesus and say, hey, God has a purpose for your life. And he wants to grow you up into a full maturity so that your life would showcase him to the world. Are you willing? Yes, Lord. Well, I need to move in. Would you allow me to move into your life? Yes, Lord, come on in. Could I touch these different areas so that I can begin to refine them, grow them up to showcase me better? Absolutely, Lord. And as you do, you love him more. You grow closer to him. And guess what? It does affect your future marriage. It does affect your future family. It does affect every relationship you have. And it's a purity movement of the most beautiful kind. By self-effort or by Christ effort. You choose. If you have a, a method of anything in your life, it doesn't have to be purity, it could be anything in life. You take marriage and you try and do a, have a great marriage by self-effort, it'll fail. You try and have a family and raise your children by self-effort, you will fail. You try and have a purity commitment in self-effort, you will fail. This is a simple rule of thumb in the kingdom of heaven. This has never changed. However, if you allow Christ's effort to be how you do it. God, you do it through me. You will find that you will succeed not because you're something special, but because he is. And he is able to do it. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Well, that's pretty clear. It's the spirit that gives life, guys. It's the second. The first, if you try and live in your own strength, your own grit, your own determination, you cannot pull this off. So this is how I'd like to finish. Uh, Jacob, in the Old Testament, he was a second, right? He was a second, but he had two versions of himself. So there's twos again, and it's the life of Jacob, which is really interesting. Even though he's a second, even his life shows two. You know what his name means? Uh, it, it's funny because we name all sorts of kids Jacob. And it's a good name because of what he symbolizes. He's a man who hungers for the things of heaven. However, he didn't go after it the right way. He, there's two ways that Jacob went after truth. The first way basically killed him. And he could have written an article for Christianity Today that would have said something like, yeah, all this heel grabbing is killing me. He was a heel grabber. You know his name actually means heel grabber? It means deceiver, supplanter. He is, when he was even being born, he grabbed the heel of the first of Esau. And that's why he was given the name. When he came out, came out of the womb, and there he is holding on. You know, it's like all the evidence is right there. So what's the first? The flesh. Self-effort. So what was Jacob trying to do? He's like, I want the things of heaven. And so he tried to do it his way. He was a heel grabber. And a heel grabber got him nowhere. What did he do? He conned uh, Esau for a bowl of red stew. Remember that? And then he conned his dad for the blessing. And Jacob's still miserable. You'd think that that would have gotten him everything he was after. He wanted the right things, but he was going after it the wrong way. Welcome to the second version of the purity movement. There's so many young Christians that have come to Christ desiring the right things, but doing it with grabbing the heel. 
They're trying to get it in their own human ability as opposed to in God's ability. That distinction, remember Jacob? He's come to the end in his life. His life isn't working so well. You know, he's had quite the rough go of it. Uh, all of his years under Laban and trying to get his wives and his kids going. I mean, this whole thing is, has just been a, uh, a serial drama uh, of ridiculousness. Everything about it. It's, a, it's actually a very disturbing story if you study it. And that's what comes of all of our lives when we are heel grabbers. And he comes to a place called Peniel. His life is in a very, very difficult place. Esau is standing against him with 400 armed men, and he, all Jacob has is women and children and some cattle. He, he has no hope against Esau and his armed men, any more than you do against your flesh, against your firstborn life. And so he finally gives up on his firstborn life and grabs a hold of God. He gives up the heel, takes that grip that he has, and he grabs a hold of God and wrestles through the night. And that's when he gets a new name, Israel. One of the best ways to understand Israel, the name Israel, is God grabbing. That's what separates out the two. You could be Jacob or you could be Israel. There's two forms of a purity movement, a Jacob version and an Israel movement, an Israel version. In other words, you could try and do it yourself and you will fail and you, you will end up writing... A, an article for Christianity Today saying it destroyed you. Because it will. I understand that. However, there is another version. There is a second version of doing this. And it is grabbing God and not letting go and saying, God, you have what I need. You have the grace. And without that, I can't do this. That's Christianity. So for those of you that have struggled with the heel grabbing, I really do empathize. I really do feel for it. But here's my encouragement to you. Instead of throwing out purity, instead of throwing out God, let go of the heel. Take that grip that God has given you in your soul and grab a hold of God. And don't let go of him until you get everything that he intends to give. He's a good God. He's a redemptive God. And he loves to take what the devil has meant for evil in your life and convert it and turn it to good. Father, I pray that you would do exactly that in each of our lives. Freshly remind us, Lord, that out of this tragedy that we're walking through with Joshua Harris right now, I pray that you would convert it into an, a, a powerful picture of your redemptive goodness in each of our lives. That you would remind us afresh that there are always two, and you are that second version. We desire you. We choose you. We vote for grace. Lord, we love you and put our trust in you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.